most of us don't like to fail. And so we try and avoid it at all costs. But failure is natural and there can be no success without it. In fact, it teaches us invaluable lessons about what not to do and how to make things right. IDR's new podcast, Failure Files, puts stories of failure front and center, where you can listen to candid perspectives and lessons from social entrepreneurs working on some of the world's toughest problems. Listen and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. My sense would be that laws and policies come out of social churning. Laws and policies don't affect the transformation. So if you think about Section 377, there's been massive mobilization around uh, Section 377 for decades uh, on the ground. Also, the trans judgment. So I think we have to recognize that laws and policies reflect social transformation. They don't bring about social transformation. Only laws also don't help, you know, because it is again in the hands of implementer of those laws. So actually it is something that needs a mindset shift and seeing really equality as a value in our life. So that comes only through dialogue and not by thrashing each other or taking completely this side or that side position. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. Here, deferring perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. The World Economic Forum publishes a global gender gap report every year that looks at gender equality around the world. Last year, India slipped 28 places ranking it 140 among 156 nations. What's worse, our ranking has consistently and steadily declined ever since this index began, 15 years ago. While depressing for sure, this shouldn't be that surprising. Indian women are still missing from public spaces. Most lack political representation and income security. Gender-based and caste violence is more prevalent than we care to admit. As a society, We also don't really acknowledge citizens who may not identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. In fact, when we measure gender equality, we don't even count people whose gender identity or expression doesn't fit neatly into the male-female binary. In the last few decades, there have been landmark judgments in India towards greater gender equality. But while some things may have changed on paper, the big question still is, have gender attitudes really changed in our country? Our two guests on the show, Sujata Khandekar and Nivedita Menon, are going to tell us what they think about this. Sujata is the founding director of Koro India, one of the country's foremost organizations in grassroots leadership and activism. Koro works specifically on changing social norms that perpetuate and justify violence against women. The organization has also built women's grassroots leadership across different marginalized communities and ethnic, gender, and religious minorities. Nivedita is a professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi and one of the founders of Kafila Online, a collective blog on contemporary politics. She's also been the recipient of the A.K. Ramanujan Award for Translation, instituted by Katha. As a writer, she's authored several books, including Seeing Like a Feminist, 
Recovering Subversion, Feminist Politics Beyond the Law, and she also co-authored Power and Contestation, India After 1989. So Sujata, my first question is to you. You have been working at the grassroots for more than three decades now, particularly with women. Can you talk about the changes you've seen over the years through your work when it comes to gender attitudes? I think last few years we have been seeing changes. The process of social change is on. Sometimes you see the visible outcome, sometimes you don't see the visible outcome. And I must also say that the changes are not happening uniformly to all women. Changes are not happening uniformly in all domains. The society accepts notion of equality in some domains where it outrightly rejects the notion of equality in other domains. So, for example, take domestic violence, you know. Actually, domestic violence was so much seen as a fate of womanhood, and that is so natural. That violence was not even seen as violence. It was seen as norm. But now we see a significant shift in how women perceive violence happening to them. One is they understand and they realize that it is violence. And then our Domestic Violence Act, etc., has also given them tool to challenge that violence. So that is getting established. Violence against women is not a norm. So that is one change that we see. Or even women's roles in family. No more they are confined only to private domain within four walls of households. Women are coming out for workplace, for education, etc. So these kind of changes we have seen. And actually, I would like to give you a concrete example how things are changing. We have a mobilization of Single women. So single women is when they are either divorcees, deserted, unmarried, widows, etc. And they themselves added a fifth category to this, women who dumped their husbands. So these are five categories of women who have come together to mobilize themselves and address their own question. So actually, what is a norm in this mobilization, in this network currently, is the way women are dressed the way they put jewellery, the way they put flower string in their head. And they have consciously done it because there are friends in the campaign who said that whenever there were festivals, she used to get really shy and run away to the field place and hide herself there because people didn't want her. She was seen as bad domain. They didn't want her to wear good clothes, jewelries, etc. So from there, that has shifted. And now dancing, celebration up-to-date outfit, string, flower strings, everything, that has become norm in the mobilization. So I think this is evolution, this kind of evolution. And the, when I talk about this changing gender attitudes, I think this way the processes are changing and evolving. Nivedita, taking a slightly broader lens, can you talk about how gender attitudes have changed over the past few decades? But in particular, could you talk about the role that policy may have played in shifting uh, gender attitudes? Um, I do completely agree with Sujata that the change has not been in all domains and for all women, but there has been change. And I think any of us can tell that there has been a definite shift in attitudes towards gender across the board. And I think in the last five, seven years, the kind of violence that is being unleashed on non-conforming women, Dalits, etc., is a kind of counter-revolution. It's a kind of pushback against the transformations that have taken place over 10 or 15 years, or maybe more than that, two decades. So I think the shift, you can see the change in gender attitudes in 
ideas around whether women should be in professions. See, because as we know, poor and working class women, they have no option but to be working, whether as domestic servants or construction labor or whatever. So this idea that it's unusual to see women in professions is a very typical middle to upper middle class kind of phenomenon. And that shift has taken place in the middle to upper middle class. The idea that women are supposed to be in professions, that to be a professional woman is just natural and, and that's taken for granted. Uh, when it comes to sexuality, queer identities, um, non-gender conforming love, non-gender conforming identities, on all of these matters, again, there's been a shift. Uh, and there is a greater visibility of these issues. There's a greater visibility of people who subscribe to these spaces and there's a definite shift. There is a shift in the way in which sexual violence is perceived. And if you think of the Me Too movement and the ways women speak up about the ways in which they face sexual harassment. Uh, so there has been a definite shift. I do, of course, want to reiterate what Sujata said, that this is not some kind of revolution across the board. There have been shifts but there hasn't been some kind of massive social transformation. There is still violence against uh, queer people and there's transphobia, there's violence against trans people, there's violence against women, Dalits. And even among those whose attitudes have shifted on questions of sexual violence and sexuality and women in professions, among those people, there would still be very strong class and caste prejudice and inability to recognize their own caste and class privilege. So their views may have shifted on all of this, but on caste and class prejudices, those would be intact. When it comes to policy and law, there have been a number of important, you know, judgments and laws. For example, the judgment uh, that recognized trans people as a third gender, the um, reading down of Section 377. So these are the two, I think, important uh, laws. I think the Domestic Violence Act, which Sujata mentioned, is a very, very important act, which has actually transformed the nature of the ways in which women feel they should have to be in a marriage. But my sense would be that laws and policies come out of social churning. Laws and policies don't affect the transformation. So if you think about Section 377, there's been massive mobilization around uh, Section 377 for decades uh, on the ground, also the trans judgment. So I think we have to recognize that laws and policies reflect social transformation. They don't bring about social transformation. You're listening to On the Contrary by IDR. We'll be right back after this break. The world is deeply interconnected, and so are the issues we're currently facing. From healthcare and economic crises to the climate emergency, none of these challenges can be tackled in isolation. People and organizations need to work together across economic, ecological, and social development issues. India Foundation for Humanistic Development, or IFHD, is a non-profit that has been doing just that. Since 2011, they have been working across India on poverty alleviation in the face of climate change and its impact on people. With a committed team of technical experts, field staff and community members, IFHD has been working across women empowerment, micro-enterprise development, and biodiversity conservation. They also focus on improving risk resilience of farming families and ensuring food and nutrition security across rural India. 
Their Pro Rasa program is currently helping 5,000 farmers in Karnataka revive a traditional farming practice called Akadi Salu. Akadi Salu involves growing multiple crops simultaneously and naturally on soil that is untouched by chemical fertilizers and pesticides. This program has helped reduce costs of farming and provided multiple income streams to farmers. It has also helped conserve water, enhance the quality and quantity of crops, trees and livestock, and has contributed to the revival of local village economies in the region. To learn more about IFHD's work, follow them on LinkedIn at India Foundation for Humanistic Development, IFHD, or visit www.ifhd.in. And now, back to the show. So, what both of you have talked about is the different kinds of shifts we've seen, um, whether it's at a sort of population level or whether it's within families, within households, and so on. But like both of you have said, it's never easy, right? It often takes a lengthy, prolonged fight because we're shaking up the status quo, so to speak. Sujata, can you tell us about instances when you've seen traditional gender norms being challenged and what the fallout has been? And also, if you could talk about what's possible when people are able to shift those norms. So first thing for any change is the resistance and especially how women's identity gets constructed, you know, in in our upbringing. So all values that we embedded is inequality, subservience, humiliation, injustice, insults. So these values, constraints, get imbibed in our upbringing. They all become part of our personality and behavior. And then they also lead to some stereotypical expectations that the society has for you, how you should behave and what you should say, what you should not say, etc., etc. So when you try to cross those boundaries, there is bound to be a backlash. And what we have seen always is society does policing, yeah? I mean, ensures that you don't cross those boundaries first. And then if you cross, then they have punishment. So what happens normally if we see punishment and fear, looming of fear, probably that is also the cost that we pay for this change initially. You know? Because you have consistent fear of losing your family honor, you're losing your near ones, your relatives, etc., your children's pain, desertion. And then you are also punished physically, beaten, raped. Uh, thrown out of house, etc., etc. So when you try to transgress this boundary. So this we have invariably seen. Men leaving wives or deserting wives is very common and that is in a way acceptable to society. But if women ask for divorce or women says, I want to stay on my own, then that becomes challenging the stereotypical expectation and norms and the social norms. So one of her friends actually... Um, she had very violent marriage and she decided to stay on her own with her four-year-old son. She was telling us horrifying stories like how she gets knocks at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And these knocks were both from men and women. Women come and ask her oh, whether you need any help. Men come and ask, are you okay? But she says, I know that everybody wants to see what I'm doing inside the house. Who is with me? They want to keep vigilance on that. So she understands. And she was saying she has a neighbor, man, who has no wife and has two children, but nobody asks him whether he needs any help. 
that to at 2 am and 3 am you know kind of thing so actually these are tools you know to pressurize you to terrorize you these are also ways of punishment we have a pardi friend you know coming from pardi community she had to pay a big price in terms of completing an ordeal that is customary to that tribe you know on the suspicion that she had relationship with supposedly quote unquote lower caste person that the community thought of and so that ordeal was on seven leaves like people she had to carry hot red ox iron and then walk some distance and throw it at the garbage and whether your hand is burnt or not is point of assessment whether you have done wrong or not so that's customary so actually these are the thing i mean there are different ways of punishing assessing keeping vigilance policing i would call it also backlash you know when you are trying to do something else because we talk of the investment that we are doing in changing things changing gender attitude but there is so much investment done for not changing those attitudes in terms of social norms practices etc so actually the efforts for changing are always minuscule as compared to the whole investment that happens to maintain the status quo of um, these norms so i would call that backlash and the mental and physical stress that a woman undergoes is the cost that she pays for challenging those gender norms but what happens actually the same friend that i was talking about who gets knocked at 2 or 3 o'clock she started working with women community women and last year she was in cii's women exemplar award that's why i think it is very important to say the kind of support that you get to deal with that backlash is so important and if you get that support to really cross that boundary of backlash then trajectory probably has no limit i think you mentioned the party community earlier for listeners that may not know could you could you just explain what the party community is party is a tribal community actually they were notified as criminal tribe under british regime after independence now they are denotified but then still that stigma remains so actually that's kind of ultra marginalized community also we can say because wherever pardis are staying any crime happens in the vicinity pardis are first to get arrested still so nivedita uh, sujata was talking about sort of how society polices and punishes right and i was curious to know why is it that there seems to be so much anxiety and pushback around bending what society approves as sort of gender roles whether it's male female other genders where does this fear of non conforming come from well it's about maintaining social order right it's so there is a certain social order this social order is based on caste hierarchy it's based on community identities being given a certain place and occupying their specific space in society um it's based on extreme class inequality so this entire social order is based on the compulsory institution of heterosexual marriage and the family that emerges or is sanctified by the heterosexual patriarchal marriage it is this family that will give you your caste identity your religious community identity it will tell you where you are in the social system it will give you your privileges it will give you your discrimination this is the unit which is at the base of every single inequality in the modern society in which we live now this family depends on 
very strict ideas of what is a man and what is a woman. This has biological connotations, it has cultural connotations. In Europe, the idea that bodies with both kinds of sexual uh, organs uh, who were called hermaphrodites uh, at that time, now we would say intersex, uh, those bodies were actually acceptable and seen as normal and natural until the 17th century, 18th century. That is when the policing of these bodies starts. And in our societies, uh, it starts um, with the coming in of colonial modernity. But now it's been naturalized. that The idea that all of us are born exclusively male or female and the idea of endogamy, the idea that marriage should always be only within permitted limits. You can see the kind of anxiety about um, intercaste and inter-religious community marriage. The anxiety, the violence against you would kill your own child rather than live with your child married to a person of another caste, usually lower caste. Also, you will notice that the idea that women are being married by men of other religious communities and castes, and that is seen as more dangerous for the family than if the men marry out and bring women from other communities and castes, because that is what the role of the woman is assumed to be, that she maintains the identity of the family and the Purity of her uterus is absolutely crucial to this process because in order to ensure that no man can have sex with her and possibly impregnate her except a man of her caste who has been found for her as her husband, it produces the extreme policing of women. So under these circumstances, the anxiety about people not conforming to their gender roles, claiming to be other than the gender they were assigned at birth, or accepting the gender they were assigned at birth and performing gender differently, uh, refusing to be proper men, refusing to be proper women, intercaste marriages, intercommunity marriages. There is so much anxiety because it is about maintaining a certain social order which retains and which fixes caste and class hierarchies and controls women's sexuality and ensures property passes from father to his son. Now, all of this requires very, very strict boundaries. So if it is about maintaining the social order, and in a sense, so many of us in society are complicit in maintaining the social order, then how do we bring about change? So Jata, you've been doing this for a long time in the work that you've been doing at Koro. How do we shift people's attitudes towards gender? Changing gender-related attitude is a long process, you know. First, it starts with denial, saying there doesn't exist something of that. Then comes justification. Then acceptance. And then behavior is still a distant thing, you know. Getting that embodied into your behavior is still a challenge. And it also has internal, external, both factors. But one thing we experience from our work, you know, like dialogue is a very powerful tool to initiate change, to initiate thinking, to initiate critical thinking. And I'm saying it is for both. I mean, women are also, our socialization is so complementary, being men and being women, you know. So women also think through the lens of men. With women also, there has to be dialogue. You can't be judgmental about the way she is behaving or her constraint. You have to be non-judgmental, non-threatening. The dialogue should be based on equality and parity, you know, communication, mutual empowerment kind of thing. And that helps one. And even with men, we are extensively working with men while dealing with violence against women. 
because we have to bring them as partners on the table they are part of problem but also they are part of solution so i would just give you an example i mean kind of uh, in our work especially we are working also in muslim uh, populated communities and this triple talaq issue was really hot then in the air you know everybody was either on this side and that side and there was no middle big people were not ready to think about each other's position and we have lots of vibrant muslim women leaders who were actually talking about triple talaq so this is a molvi who actually issued a circular in the community that don't entertain these women because they are anti men and anti religion so don't allow them to come to your homes etc so that was kind of resistance or opposition that he had and then what happened was a team of 7 8 women you know our colleagues leaders they went to have a dialogue with them and quite a few of them were diverses themselves so they went they talked about their strive etc etc and he just didn't pay any heed in the first communication but we continued with that and actually i'm so happy to tell you that he is our ardent supporter currently he works with us not only that he is our fellow of uh, working on constitutional values where he has come up with a curriculum which sees the similarities and convergences between quran and constitution and he pleads that he teaches to young kids from his madrasa and when i asked him what was the tipping point and he said actually your approach when your team was consistently putting their point and pressing their point ahead they made space for me to speak they tried to understand where i am also coming from and then i thought you are not as bad as i was thinking from there the dialogue started i mean laws are there nivedita was talking about laws you know and she said actually they reflect what is going on in the society definitely but only laws also don't help you know because it is again in the hands of implementer of those laws so actually it is something that needs a mindset shift and seeing really equality as a value in our life so that comes only through dialogue and not by thrashing each other or taking completely this side or that side position because by fighting this way we lose the space of resilience and listening to each other not talking to the converted people if we are crossing the boundaries ideological boundaries then this is probably the most effective way we thought honestly it's so much easier said than done i feel sitting here and listening to you uh, because we do have biases that we don't realize we have sometimes and i think maintaining a sense of equality in these conversations and an openness to listen makes such a difference but two questions come up for me that i'd like to ask you nivedita if dialogue is the only way or is one of the most powerful ways then what do we do when there is no space for dialogue and we're seeing this happen increasingly today we're seeing it not only in india we're seeing it in many parts of the world and the second part of the question really is how can we expand the conversation like sujatha was saying so we move beyond our own circles and bring other people in as well so what do we do when there's no space for dialogue and how do we expand the conversation see when it comes to dialogue we have to recognize that even inside the spaces that are supposedly ours there are a range of differences of opinion the first level of dialogue is with people who share a vision with us 
but within that space there are inequalities of privilege caste and class there are inequalities of who has legitimacy to speak there are hierarchies of age often so the first level of dialogue has to be among ourselves on questions of caste privilege class privilege all of that and that can be quite bitter and that can be quite divisive and we have to figure out ways in which that doesn't happen so that is our first big hurdle or our first big struggle that is the first space of dialogue the second kind of level of dialogue is with people who could be our allies like the malvi of in sujata's case uh, so we could actually and should reach out just beyond that to people who may simply be people organization sections who may simply not have thought through certain things so this again starts from the home you're talking to your father and mother brother uncles and then you talk to your neighbor so the second level of dialogue is with people who may listen who simply have not thought of an alternative and they don't respond violently when you suggest something but they actually start thinking and many of us are doing that all the time now the third the outer circle of those whose purpose it is to maintain a certain social order so there we are talking about individuals but we are talking about a very highly organized right wing which has control over institutions which has control over structural spaces and particularly in the past few years so when you are talking about a highly organized project to transform the country in a particular direction there you reach the limits of dialogue and conversation because the response to dialogue and conversation is actual physical violence or it is the use of state institutions to silence you to jail you to not permit you to say the smallest thing it is the use of coercive institutions like the police it's the use of instruments like the law a private citizen can file a case for sedition against anybody if a private citizen feels that his nationalist sentiments have been hurt then of course there are very well organized it campaigns trolling people who are paid to troll you these things have been you know well established and women particularly face very violent trolling and rape threats and death threats when you reach that domain what is our alternative we don't have an alternative but uh, we don't have any other weapon than our insistence on non-violent protest and non-violent dialogue which we will keep up and the idea is to isolate that outer circle the idea is that that middle circle should expand more and more and i think that is also happening i mean it's not that it's not happening but at that level when you face violence in response to dialogue we still have only i will never forget the image of the man with a gun at shahin bagh he is walking towards the protest with his gun and a young student is walking towards him not running away from him towards him and he's saying let's talk he's walking towards him not violently not he's unarmed he's walking towards him because he wanted to just engage him this is our mode you're faced with a gun you try to engage you see we don't have any other option so that's what we'll keep doing i guess you know there have been important policy changes but they need to be enforced and implemented effectively right you mentioned the nalsa judgment which was a landmark judgment because it was the first to legally recognize non binary gender identities and also uphold the fundamental rights of transgender people in india but today 
we know that the greatest perpetrators of violence against the trans community in India is actually other law enforcement officials, is the police. You know, we don't know if there are separate toilets everywhere as yet, um, access to targeted healthcare in hospitals and so on and so forth. And of course, the Nalsa judgment is just one example of this. So what are the structural changes that we need? And how do we know things are changing for the better? The fact that there is no calm and the fact that there is such a big pushback from the right wing of different sorts means that there is change. And I think we've all experienced change in our lifetime. But I think one structural change that we can actually talk about practically and which could be a campaign is a recognition of the sexual division of labor and how it produces burdens and hurdles for all women. By sexual division of labor, I mean the normalizing of the idea that women are responsible for reproduction and men are responsible for production in the public domain. But of course, most women are also involved in production, but almost no man is involved in reproduction. So this is the sexual division of labor. And what the sexual division of labor does is at very high levels, like at the level of if you're a CEO, then you have the idea of the glass ceiling because you voluntarily step back from many, many kinds of work that you could do because of your responsibilities towards your children and the home. And then, of course, as you come lower down in the class hierarchy, it also explains why there aren't so many women in public politics, because their responsibilities are so great. So if you look at even the reservation for women in Panchayati Raj institutions, many studies have shown the women are usually very young or much older. In their childbearing and home running age, they do not enter into politics. You do that when you can hand over everything to a daughter-in-law or if you haven't started yet. Then women voluntarily clip their wings. If you ask class 12 students, what are your aims and ambitions, the way boys will speak and the way the girls will speak will be very different because the girls are already aware of the limitations by the time they're 17 or 18. Even if they want a job, they know what kind of job will enable them to be still a good wife and mother. Now, when we recognize this, uh, if we work towards a campaign of social and state and employer responsibility for child care, that's it, just one small thing, that the childcare responsibilities cannot continue to be privatized like this. They cannot continue to be privatized into nuclear households where, or even joint family households where only the women are doing this work. Children are a community's wealth. They're called human resources for a reason. So if every employer from the contractor on the building site to this multinational company all the way. Wherever there are people employed, there should be childcare facilities. Not for women. There should be childcare facilities for all employees. Now, this will have a ripple effect of employment because there will have to be people running those childcare facilities and their children should also be part of that space. So they're not leaving their own children behind to come and run these creches and daycare facilities. If you think of one small change, this is a doable thing. It is practical. It can be affected. I think we should, I, I would say this would be my, my suggestion for a structural change. If we want women to be in public domain, to be taking responsibilities outside her home, doing different kind of work, then childcare, everything that restricts you from stepping out of home. So structural requirements are also providing these kind of facilities, which are enabling for women, like having crashes, having community kitchens, etc., which 
eases out her burden that is stereotypically her burden or her job and eliminating the restricting factor and we talked about the backlash you know when you try and change anything which is stereotypical then the kind of backlash that you get so having very strong support systems there having support system in the nearest environment somebody in say in the remote part of maharashtra cannot depend on an organization in mumbai or a support in mumbai the support has to come from the nearest environment where they all collectively can take care of that there is structural change that is needed in education because our education teaches so much inequality right from the upbringing childhood and i consistently feel while working most often we are very reactive to what happens and all our actions are more uh, incidence based where there is some incidence of inequality violence then we respond to that or we react to that and i consistently feel that work has to be done on mental structures and mental models those structures patterns models because they are so deeply embedded into it to get out of it is a challenge for everybody whether it's a man woman trans anybody because that has constructed kind of identity so then they can be equitable and that's what i call a structural change you know and that is my expectation from the process and the moment there's a lot we've covered today but i'd like to conclude with two things the first is that We often don't think about the investment that goes into maintaining a certain status quo or social order. Whether it's toxic masculinity or the pressure to fit into neat gender roles, it's important to recognize that while the anxiety around disrupting gender norms causes mental and physical stress, so does needing to abide by a rigid system. Second, we can achieve little without dialogue, and dialogue carried out on an equal footing. And both of you have shared examples of breakthroughs that are possible through dialogue. This is in fact one of the main reasons why we began on the contrary. We find ourselves in a society where there is less and less tolerance for differing perspectives and world views. So thank you both for today. While it's easy to feel dejected about how much work is left when it comes to changing gender attitudes, I want to leave this conversation on an optimistic note. Grateful for what has been achieved. and how far we've come over the past few decades. Thank you for listening to On the Contrary by IDR. I'm Rachita Vora, co-founder and director of IDR, an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas, lessons and insights written by and for the people working on some of India's toughest problems. We believe that knowledge has the power to drive change, and our platform serves as a stage for underserved topics unheard voices and the counter narratives that are crucial to achieving social progress to learn more about the ideas featured on this podcast as well as the latest thinking on social impact visit our website www.idronline.org you can also find us on facebook instagram twitter or linkedin as always thank you for listening On the Contrary is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarnita Shetty, and Shreya Adhikari. This episode was hosted by Rachita Vora. Production by Made in India.